You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is co-host David Leach from ITK Services. David, I do trust you are well. I am well, thanks, Giles. I trust all our listeners are well. And I guess we're here to sort out and sift through the myriad of announcements and flurry of good and wonderful things that are happening at the moment. Well, look, we do actually have a really good interview later on um, with a lithium iron uh, market specialist, which is very topical ahead of battery day. But um, look, I guess most of um, well ourselves and many of our listeners will still be picking themselves up from the floor from the, uh, the uh, spate of announcements on, on apparently what was called energy or been dubbed energy week by Scott Morrison and wanting to talk to us about something else apart from COVID-19. But look, I think it's got a lot of us flummoxed. Um, gas is obviously a big part of the um, equation at the start of the week. But David, I've talked to a lot of people about the announcement about the replacement of Liddell and this ultimatum to get Snowy Hydro to build a one gigawatt gas plant if enough, if not enough dispatchable capacity has been built um, by this sort of April next year deadline. I honestly can't for the life of me, and I haven't found anybody else who's actually understood what the hell is going on, what the hell they're proposing, and what they think the market's going to do about it. No, well, it's complicated, and I can't say I have all the answers. Uh, what, uh, and I guess it always depends on what lens you, you view it through. Uh, as I've said a couple of times, if you want to view it positively, it's not an announcement from the federal government boosting uh, thermal coal. It's not one of those. It's an announcement uh, boosting gas. And to some, extent, <laughs> to, to some extent, I think Scott Morrison must be surprised that it hasn't been met with a huge cheer uh, in, a, in one sense. But um, the, the next lens you'd view it through is just the lack of coordination between federal government policy, if that's what you can call it, and what uh, the integrated system plan and all the work that COAG and the states are doing separately. Uh, and, the th- you know, uh, the third lens you could v- view it through is this idea that the federal government is using uh, snowy uh, hydro, uh, which used to have a nice pristine sort of life when it was owned by everyone and stayed in the background. But now it's been thrust into the forefront of the national debate. And it's been used as a tool of federal government policy, as well as trying to pursue independent commercial aims. And a lot of people don't like that. Uh, It's the wrong way, essentially, to run a government-owned business. It's interesting because during the COVID-19 debate or the, um, the the whole thing over the last six months, and Scott Morrison's made an absolute point of um, standing next to an expert when he's talking about policy and initiatives and things like that, um, it would have been very useful to have one next to him um, earlier on this week because he's basically talking about the, the shortfall in um, capacity and, and reliability in New South Wales from Liddell, but that's not what AEMO says. He talked about the potential price impacts if this capacity um, wasn't met, but that's not even what it's task force, literal task force says. Um, and then he talks about the failure of the market to respond. But the government ha- has had its own program, its own 
um, Ungi program that's underwriting new generation investments, trying to get at least two gas plants up. That's been running for two years, and they still haven't been able to sign a deal. Surely that tells us, or at least it should tell them, that it's very hard to get a new gas-fired power station over the line. Uh, Yes, it is hard to get gas over the line. There isn't a price signal for it at the moment. Uh, and the trouble is, I mean, in the, the, you could divide the uh, firming market, right? So what we see is at, at the moment, uh, or historically, all the electricity was supplied by, by uh, firming gener- by coal, by thermal electricity, uh, with a little bit of gas, also thermal, and then some hydro to do the, do the balancing. Now, what's happened is that wind and solar, including rooftop, are up to about 20% of the market now. And we already know they're going to go to 30%. Uh, and so that all comes, that's energy that isn't getting sold by the thermal generators. So they're getting competed out, they're competing for less and less market share. And uh, But if you want to build a new thermal ge- dispatchable generator, your problem is that uh, if you build it right now, you have to compete with all these coal generators who on average are going to be able to undercut you on the variable cost because in the end, uh, uh, the, the, inc- the marginal megawatt hour of coal generation is cheaper most of the time than the marginal megawatt hour of gas. Uh, and so your, your gas market is pretty small and shrinking all the time. And what you're building the gas generator for is is in the hope that all the coal generators are going to close and then you'll have a big uh, firming demand. But on the other side of your lunch, uh, uh, when you look at the other way, you find batteries coming down in price at a, at a huge rate of knots in cost. And you see that the electricity market, uh, settling market is moving to five minutes and that the batteries can have all these additional incremental sources of revenue coming from system security services and the like, uh, uh, providing... Uh, 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 frequency support, uh, and they're they're going to uh, so they can, they have an independent life, almost like rooftop solar, uh, and but they can compete with you in the arbitrage market if there ever is any. So if you're a gas fire generator and you still haven't got much incremental new gas supply, <laughs> future doesn't look too wonderful. No, it's bizarre, but they just don't seem to be able to accept the sort of the the idea of battery storage at all. And um, when asked about what sort of dispatchable generation they're looking for, they were saying twenty four seven, and batteries don't do that. So it it still seems to me that they're sort of locked in this sort of um, this this old world of baseload, and they still just haven't moved on from um, coal and gas and hydro and this sort of centralised plant. And talking about gas supply, let's just briefly talk about these sort of opening up of all these basins and these new supply terminals and things like that. Look, honestly, it's not a market that I know too much about do you have any particular view on what they're trying to do there i mean it just seems to me that the fundamental point here is that you can talk about as much supply as you want the problem with australian gas is 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 actually quite expensive to extract and i think as the origin ceo and other people have said there is actually no such thing as cheap gas in australia no i think that's exactly Exactly right, and uh, that's going to remain the case. I mean, you can argue whether the gas come if if New, if it was New South Wales or Santos went ahead with their coal seam gas in in New South Wales, whether it would be five dollars at the wellhead or uh, or I mean extra processing plant or six dollars or, or, or whatever the number would be, it's not going to be three dollars, and then you've still got to transport it uh, around the place. Uh, we've looked at the gas transport economics from West Australia, where there is plenty of gas, uh, bringing them over east, and uh, imported gas from America is a much lower uh, capital cost and a much lower risk investment for anyone. Uh, and I and as I said, I mean, in the end, the market, the demand for gas, gas is not really growing because there isn't going to be a lot of energy used in gas-fired generation. 
gas. It's great to have the gas there if you're a consumer. You're probably all in favour of these new gas-fired generators because they're certainly not going to make the price go up. They're not going to run very often, but they're going to be fantastic when you do need them on those sort of winter months when there isn't any wind or solar and you suddenly want a lot of generation at, at six o'clock in the evening, then gas can run for a couple of hours or even a day or two, and that's terrific. But it's not actually going to use a lot of gas and you've got to have all this infrastructure in place to support it. And it's not going to be cheap either. Before we move on to our interview, I just wanted to touch on ARENA and the Sea Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Um, now, as predicted, the Morrison and um, Angus Taylor, well, one good piece of news is that they're allocating $1.5 billion to keep ARENA going. Um, on the flip side, they're trying to sort of um, change the mandates to allow them to put um, invest in what they call low emissions technologies, and that will include CCS and hydrogen and a bunch of other things soil carbon and what have you. Um, David, what's what's your opinion on this? I mean, like CCS, CCS just seems to be sort of um, barking mad, but um, something that they probably feel that they need to do to keep their sort of constituents happen, happy. But um, I suppose it's good in a way that um, Arena's actually kept going, even if the board is now dominated by his former advisor and um, former partner in um, BA Economics. Yes, uh, look, I think that's right. I, I, I'm not going to comment too much around arena. Uh, every, anyone can study the CCS sort of uh, thing, and uh, as uh, but few in the private sector would want to invest in carbon capture and storage uh, for for many reasons. One of which it just uses requires a lot more coal to be extracted in the first place, and and it's just not a technology, in my opinion, which is going to allow costs to come down in the same way that battery or solar costs or wind come down, because basically every CCS project is going to be different. Uh, and so it'll have its own unique costs. But can I actually give a tick, a, a applause, a clap, a very rare one for one element of the uh, strategy, and that is the money that's been allocated to mi microgrids. Uh, and, you know, I was just on a previous uh, uh, talk to North Queensland people talking about uh, the outlook up there. And I was, I was amazed to find how much work someone like Bob Catter does on the ground in helping things like Copper String 2, a new transmission project to, go to put, hook my eyes up to the grid, but even in doing little local microgrids to communities uh, near Cairns, uh, how much work he does on the ground. And, you know, there's, the federal government's already allocated uh, 60 or 70 million, I think it is, to microgrid development. And there's more money in this package for microgrids. So I'd be encouraging all those entrepreneurial engineers and computer scientists uh, to get out there and building the new future in, in devices, uh, grid-forming inverters, uh, townships that are going to have their own microgrids and build us this better and secure future that I'm so excitedly hoping to see. Very good. And look, there's one other piece of good news too, which we should actually mention, was the $250 million um, committed to three of the transmission, um, new transmission links, um, Marinus, uh, VNI West, and uh, Project Energy Connect, all of which are going to facilitate more investment in renewables and other forms of storage and will probably be, be the death of many of the gas generators in those regions. So it's kind of sort of counter counterintuitive, really. But um Look, David, I think we should probably just leave it there and let's go on to talk, um, introduce our discussion. Now, um, this was your suggestion. Um, you've been digging into the lithium iron market um, quite recently and there's a couple of interesting Australian producers, including Oracoba, which is over in South America, and um, you came across um, these experts in South Africa, RK Equity, and um, we spoke to one of the founders, Rodney Hooper. 
Rod Hooper from um, RK Equity, all the way from South Africa. Welcome to the Energy Insiders podcast, Rod, and um, congratulations. I'm pretty sure you're the first South African to have joined our podcast. Thanks very much. <laughs> now, your um, business is a consulting and an advisory business, um, focuses on lithium iron. And um, you've been in the sort of the commodities market for, for many decades. Um, what's the attraction of the lithium iron um, industry? And can it support a whole consultancy devoted to nothing but that? <laughs> so, um, yeah, a few years ago, I had a look at the EV battery metal space. Um, there's good prospects across all of them. But the one thing that is consistent and is the irreplaceable element in any lithium ion battery is the lithium. So in all scenarios, that's uh, a specialty chemical that, that's going to uh, win out. I guess one of the big thing questions is, um, is there enough lithium there to meet demand and um, who's going to be producing it and what sort of price will it be? Um, you sometimes hear these sort of off these sort of throwaway lines about, well, EV batteries are all good, but it's made up of all these rare earths and things like that, and um, there's not enough of them. Well, funnily enough, I think for some of them, they're actually called rare earths, but they're not actually rare, and I think lithium is probably one of them. It's just a matter of whether there's actually sufficient mining capacity. Is, is, is that uh, I kind think, of right? I think, Giles, lithium's the uh, third most common element in the, in, in, in the Earth's crust or something like that, but it, as you say, it's the extraction cost uh, and finding enough of it in exactly the right place. Yeah, so that's that's a fair comment because you often hear it quoted about how there's lithium everywhere, but the issue is in what sort of form and in what sort of purity. So the evolution of the industry going back to the 1950s, you know, the use of lithium has uh, transitioned from, you know, glass, ceramics, pharmaceutical to now being applied to the, you know, the e-mobility revolution. And the issue is in order to ensure that you can meet battery warranties and avoid battery degradation in electric vehicles and certainly in the upmarket ones being sold uh, outside China is you need a very specific purity. And that's where the, the difficulty comes in is um, lithium being everywhere, but for example, Bolivia, but it has very high magnesium. So you've got to remove that. So, it's not that the the uh, the element itself is uh, scarce. It's in trying to evolve with the demand case for lithium, where you know downstream users need very high purity. With um, electric vehicle batteries, have you know eight-year warranties, and Elon Musk's now talking about a million-mile battery, which won't just be used for transport, but also for vehicle-to-grid. And you know, used as a mini mini power grid. So um, that's really the um, the challenge is meeting the requirements. Yes. So uh, I guess uh, let's, Ronnie. Maybe you could just step through for those of our listeners that aren't familiar. Basically, there's two products: lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide. Uh, and uh, there are two basic markets, as you say, e-mobility and everything else that lithium used to be used for. Um, and it's only in the past couple of years, I believe, that uh, e-mobility lithium demand has, has exceeded the demand from other sources, or that may not even be quite be the case. 
And then there's the more broad issue that I think uh, investors are going to be concerned about, which is this uh, tension that there always is between supply and demand. So uh, in a very rapidly growing market, at times demand, like when China was first taking off China electric cars, uh, then, then demand can way exceed supply because the history of this industry has been that new supply is always slow and late. Uh, but then eventually supply catches up and maybe demand has a pause and, and supply exceeds demand for a while and uh, we, the price collapses. Um, and, and then on top of all of that, we've got two different methods of manufacturing lithium without wanting to confuse listeners and go through too much too soon. But we've got the spodumene, which is quite uh, common in Australia, which has to be processed. And then we can also produce lithium uh, by evaporated brine salts, uh, like like salt water, but except it's lithium salts, and you just uh, evaporate it out and, and reprocess it. So I was just, uh, um, I guess the question with that background in mind is, let me ask first of all, where are we in the cycle? And I want to focus in on more on that by saying, what's happening in the battery manufacturing side of things? We've talked about these mega factories. How much is actually supply capacity growing? So, uh, yeah, that's an interesting, an interesting question. So roughly last year, I think batteries represented about 62% of demand. And you mentioned uh, carbonate and hydroxide. So you can use both those, uh, those forms in uh, any battery. But as soon as you get to about 65% nickel in the cathode, you can only use hydroxide. And it's to do with the sintering process and... Uh, damaging the crystal structure. So as the world has evolved from being uh, China dominated with EV sales to now Europe picking up and the US and rest of the world and also China, but in the upmarket segment, you see more high nickel uh, cathodes being introduced for sort of longer range and faster charging. So you've had uh, an increase in demand for hydroxide and that's going to continue but it's coming off a very low base. And again, you know, I have to mention, you know, the, the, the difficulties in achieving the, pur the purity that's, that's required. So there are three main suppliers that are qualified into the battery supply chain, into the EV supply chain, and that's Albemol, Ganfin, and Livent. And there are some, some new entrants that will no doubt meet the mark in time. But um, yeah, that's, you know, it's uh, it, the difficulty with lithium, unlike nickel, copper, et cetera, is there is no futures market because each and every product is so unique. There are sort of broad guidelines and specifications sheets that have to be met, but no two sets of products are the same. So in the absence of having a futures market, you have a sense of what people need, but ultimately the OEMs themselves other than you know perhaps Europe, which has uh, the CO2 penalty, you know emissions penalties, so they know roughly what they need to sell. It's very hard to know what future supply and demand is going to be from EVs, from energy storage, you know, and any of the battery applications. So it's it's very difficult to align supply and demand. But in the end, I think we can be confident that, or at least I am, that demand is going to grow. If we just talk about demand, it's obvious that cars, you know, when they have like, uh, say, 60 kilowatt hours of capacity, are going to be using a lot more than electric bikes, which, uh, you know, have half a kilowatt hour of capacity or something. 
have you got a sense for the uh, battery grade lithium market? Uh, how it divides between cars and and the rest of rest of the industry? Yeah, sure. So, based on on our forecasts, we have um, for battery demand by twenty twenty five, sixty percent of that demand will be for uh, passenger EVs for light duty EVs, and then forty percent on the balance. So the traditional markets, you've got consumer electronics, you've got energy storage, um, which is picking up. And, um, and then you have, of course, commercial trucks as well. And, uh, you know, and, and e-bikes. So but the, the, the majority will be, um, we believe in light, uh, you know, passenger EVs by 2025. And can you give me a sense of what uh, compound growth rate you're you're looking at for lithium demand then over the next, I guess, five years is the sort of thing I'd feel confident about forecasting. But if you want to venture into a three, five, and ten year forecast, uh, uh, that that would be helpful. Yeah, you know the industry and battery technology changes so fast. I think you'd need to be fairly, you know, cautious and giving an unequivocal view of what's coming, you know, in 10 and 20 years time. But um, if we look sort of at what the next five years is, is going to look like, because a lot of investment has been made, you've got, um, you've got lithium demand growing from just over 300,000 tons last year to we have 940,000 tons in uh, 2025. But within that, the nuance is in the battery quality material that's going to pick up materially and that is going to dominate. So you will have, you know, about 815,000 tons of that will be um, battery related in the different shapes and forms and then the industrial uses uh, and primary batteries for the balance. So the, the, compound, the compound for battery quality material is very high and within that, we believe that hydroxide coming off such a low base and people looking for, um, you know, Elon Musk calling for more nickel and so on, it's over 40% compound over that time period. So that's a fantastic uh, growth, annual growth rate. I mean, the, you know, that's like the early days of computers. And yet, and yet, Rodney, what we've seen is that over the past 12 months, lithium prices have absolutely gone right down the toilet. Uh, so let, let me ask why that's the case and, and what do you guys think about the outlook for prices? Sure. So, again, you know, the, the most sensitive pricing is the China spot market, which is essentially where all excess material finds its way and gets sold at whatever the clearing price is. There's contract pricing where, you know, where I mentioned um, some of the previous companies that have term contract pricing into the South Korean and Japanese battery makers, and those prices have been more stable. They have dropped somewhat, but they have been much more stable than the China spot. Now, because you don't, uh, you know, there is, there is no, you know, mass storage of, of the materials. So when you have an oversupply, there is a severe impact on uh, on pricing certainly into the spot market but the actual quantums of oversupply haven't been that big there was uh, you know there definitely was last year and, and we're going to see a little bit more this year but in the battery quality segment of the market 
we think that by the end of next year, early 2022, the lithium hydroxide market's going to tighten. And that's coming off the back of, as I say, CO2 emission compliance in Europe in particular, and um, all the new models that are being launched on the EV range. It's, it's amazing what's coming out in the next couple of years. And then we would say carbonate would be about a year behind that, and then that market will start to tighten as well. So we've seen prices drop on um, on not massive oversupply, so it will be interesting to see how pricing reacts when there is a shortfall of the battery quality material that's needed. And it sounds to me, uh, reading between the lines, although you don't want to say it, that you're quite the bull on pricing. And I guess I'm willing to hear that because that's the way I think about it as well. But I must say I've been disappointed <laughs> over the past, not unexpectedly, but still disappointed. Look, I guess, you know, in, in life, you know, in commodities, although, as I say, you know, battery, battery quality material is definitely a specialty chemical. There are some more commoditized parts of the, the lithium supply chain. But, you know, as the old saying goes, the cure for low prices is low prices and the cure for high prices is high prices. And we had an enormous run in 2016 and 17. Yes, you're talking, you're talking stockbroking language there. It's music to my ears, those sort of statements. Uh, let me uh, just ask uh, again, you, you mentioned Europe, and I, I see that there's talk about the EU providing uh, a lot of, I think, finance for, for electric cars, and you mentioned new models, and I think I saw, thought I saw somewhere that Germany is going to require every petrol station to have e-charging. What do you see in terms of... Uh, uh, do you, you know, EV growth, I guess? I mean, it must be pretty high uh, if you've got 40% growth in lithium. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the good thing about Europe is what they have done is marry a number of initiatives. They've got the carrot and the stick. So they're offering massive buyer incentives where already, you know, uh, EVs are cheaper on a, on a four-year life scale than on internal combustion engines and they've got the penalties where they penalize the OEMs if they continue to sell too many internal combustion engine vehicles. But just to give you a sense, so at the moment it's it's up for um it's up for a vote as to whether or not um because of the importance of transport in 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 carbon emissions in Europe, they're talking about potentially asking for a carbon emissions cut in vehicles of 50% to 2030 in Europe, up from the original proposal of 37.5, which is now currently you know, already in existence. In order to meet a 50% cut in emissions from the 2021 levels, I saw recently um, it was uh, estimated that you would need 60% of vehicles to be either battery electric or plug-in hybrid by 2030 to meet those emissions targets. So that gives you a sense. And this year, for the first half of the year, I think EV plug-in EVs were 9% of the European market. So you'd be going from 9 to 60% in the next 10 years. That's a, that's a fantastic uh, and very encouraging level of growth. I guess, though, in the past year, as you say, it's been matched by a 
bit of a downturn in China. And then the third market is, of course, uh, I guess the United States, where things just seem to be plugging along steadily. If, if, am I, and, and, part I mean, of, and part of the issue there is if you look at Europe, there is a huge uh, diversification of what is bought in EVs. In fact, the Renault Zoe has been the highest selling car, whereas in America, Tesla dominates hugely. And I think as new models come out, and certainly, you know, if you've looked at all of the uh, new models that are being launched in the U.S., particularly in the in the popular segments, uh, you know, pickup truck and SUV to come, that we're likely to see, you know, the U.S. Uh, take off again. And make no mistake, I think in May, the pre-orders, and I know it's only a hundred dollars and what have you, but. For the Tesla Cybertruck, there were 713,000 pre-orders. And I would say now that they're looking to start producing in 2021, I would say that number is probably going to climb to a million. And that, that's, you know, that's, that's business. That's business. <laughs> and unfortunately for Ford, that's a lot of their business. So they are need to, they're going to need to get their electric F-150 up and running pretty smartly. Or their, or their Rivian or something like that. I'm wondering what um, you're expect. You mentioned Battery Day at the very start. Um, Tesla, it's coming up next week. Um, what do you expect to see out of that? You talked about the million-mile battery. Are you expecting significant enough announcements to trigger the next phase in electric vehicles, as it were, or, and, or, yeah. or battery, battery production? I would say yes. Uh, you know, the market giving it over a $400 billion market cap seems to be absolutely believing that. And I think what we might well see is, um, is two new types of batteries. So you've got the dry cell electrode coming from Maxwell Technologies. They're talking about 300 watt hours a kilo of energy density at the cell level, which would be a 20% uplift from where Tesla is now. And they're talking about a 10 to 20% reduction in costs. So that alone would suddenly make the semi, the truck, which was not possible at the energy density and cost previously, now certainly is within the realms of, of, you know, of profitable. So that's, I think, why they're talking about commercial production of that by next year out of Austin. Um, and then the other battery is, uh, you know, single crystal cathode, you know, in, um, with a million mile battery. And uh, that, I think, is to do more with the vehicle-to-grid. And as you know, Elon mm. Musk has applied for a, you know, a, an, a power license in, in the UK, and I think they're applying elsewhere. So the opportunity, we, we don't need a million-mile battery. We use maybe 150,000, 200,000 miles in our car. So that leaves you mm -hmm. with, when your car sits for 95% of the of you know the day and night that you could now potentially charge and discharge the battery for the balance of that million miles and sell that wherever it's needed and indeed why why even put it in the car at all uh, a battery with that lifespan is going to be far more effective in the straight out utility market uh, for batteries in in um, stationary electricity I wanted to ask, Rodney, in Australia, uh, state governments have been persuaded by various entrepreneurs that maybe there's a future for a battery manufacturing industry in Australia. I, I guess, uh, speaking as a sceptical analyst, uh, 
I feel that there's you need to have a lot of things going for you to be successful in the battery market, including vertical integration and, and chemistry, uh, intellectual property, uh, and you know distribution and big purchasing contracts, as well as manufacturing expertise. Uh, do you, th- do you, th- you know, would you be putting I'm a, with you. a, a I, think, uh, I think I'm with you on this. Um, you know, one would have to ask for the commercial rationale and, you know, what would be the domestic usage, first of all, in Australia. But um, the other thing is, in order for something to get into a battery, you've first got to do the mining, the chemical processing, the cathode, you know, then, uh, you know, then the cell and then the pack. And um, at the moment, you know, Chemerton will come online in, uh, they say, late 21. I'm, I'm saying early 22 is more my timeline. And then there'll be some time to then ramp that up. So are you going to, in that, if that's the case, are you then going to shift and shunt all the battery materials all around the world and then finally send them back to Australia? Or does one go downstream into cell manufacturing once you have done, once you have got, lithium you know you know lithium chemicals produce their nickel sulfate and so on produced you know in australia and then a cathode plant in australia before you then venture to cells yes i i yes my feeling is but i'm uh, as a simple person getting old i guess that uh, australia should stick to stick to what it's good at which is taking the stuff out of the ground and shipping it to someone who knows what to do with it uh, but, and but, I agree, uh, and, and also, you know, and also, you know, South Korea, you know, and Japan, or what have you, you know, possibly one of one of the uh, one of those guys would put a plant in Australia, but I'd still need to see the demand case in Australia for the usage of the cells, or, or are you then going to then just ship them? In which case, it all comes down to economics. Well, well, Giles will tell you about Australia's wonderful EV policies, won't you, Giles? Giles? Sorry, I had the mute button on again. And um, oh, the simple answer to that is, David, as you know, we don't actually have any EV policies. So, um, um, and that's why we don't have very many electric vehicles. And that's why the Renault Zoe that um, Rodney mentioned earlier on isn't available in Australia anymore because Renault can't be bothered bringing it over here. And that's why Kia is not bringing it uh, Nero over here any, so, anymore. So then, and, then um, my point is, are you going to compete against South Korea and Japan, well-established supply chains and Europe and, you know, the States and China in, in what? In exporting the batteries out of Australia? You know, and then there's logistics and costs on that front. Um, so I, I, I think I agree with you, you know, from a mining perspective and then from start with mining and chemical processing. Yes, and I'd like to come back to one other point because uh, I mentioned at the start that we can use spodumene and uh, or brines, and we don't have brines in Australia, but we do have a spodumene uh, lithium ore sort of thing which has to be secondary processed. But if if we think that the market is going to be moving to lithium hydroxide, which is where you think the extra growth has been as the amount of nickel goes up, <laughs> um, uh, then are you better being a Brian Saltz guy uh, or or a Spodumene guy, or does it not matter? Yeah, so, so, so I mean, look, you know, the carbonate's also growing. It's just growing from a much higher base. It's just you know relative. But the thing with, you know, 
hard rock to hydroxide, if you look at VW and the others that have had a look at it, so the issue is this, because the sun and the wind evaporates the brine, you know, the brine in the ponds, from a carbon footprint perspective, um, brines have a lot lower carbon footprint. However, there is the environmental impact and what happens when you pump a whole lot of brine from under the surface and what does that do to the local environment? That is a sort of stumbling block there. So for VW, they have said, you know, their preference is hard rock to hydroxide. Um, but they are monitoring the situation. But if you look in the Atacama, barely a week goes by and there's another row between the operators and the copper miners and the government and the local communities. So it's a, it's a sticking point. But as far as, you know, hard rock to hydroxide is one step. Uh, brine to hydroxide, you do carbonate first and then you do another, there's another step. That's not to say, you know, from an economics point of view, ultimately is who can produce hydroxide at the cheapest price and to sell into which market. And then it gets complicated because there are export taxes, import duties, and all sorts of things that go on. Um, and some of the brand producers are, are able to produce a carbonate at a very good price. So they can actually still compete in, you know, in selling hydroxide, but it comes down to purity and it comes down to product and it, you know, it comes down to your, your cost structure. Indeed, indeed. And I, I should mention for the record that I actually own shares in a brine producer or Cobra, uh, uh, just for, for the sake of anyone listening to this podcast who's interested in that. But uh, um, the other, <laughs> we're coming to the end of our time, Rodney, and it's been incredible depth of knowledge and you've been very generous in sharing uh, a complicated topic quickly. The only other thing I want to ask is that if you look at Elon Musk, and we all love to talk about what he's doing, he's now making Teslas in China and talking about exporting them. And the relevance for the battery market is that I understand he's using lithium ion phosphate, which is a, a more basic sort of form of uh, battery, but cheaper uh, and arguably less fire risk as well, as far as that goes. Um, uh, is there going to be a, a, a decent export market for lithium ion phosphate, or do you think, as, as, as well as the higher energy density products based more around nickel and, and so far cobalt? So that's the, that's the big debate, and that's the question, because, you know, uh, lithium ion phosphate can use either carbonate or hydroxide. It's, you know, carbonate's cheaper, so that's the preferred choice. The issue is um, that uh, lithium ion phosphate is cheaper. There, there are some questions still raised about the performance of lithium ion phosphate in very cold temperatures, um, but, uh, you know, Australia obviously wouldn't be a risk. Some have said that they have gone with lithium-ion phosphate in China because they had pressure to use domestic supply, um, and they've gone with CATL's uh, battery. And if you look at the submission documents in China, the energy den density of those particular batteries isn't that great. It's not as good as BYD's blade battery. I think it all comes down to horses for courses, and then the question of, is Tesla next week going to unveil a battery that if, if you set a fixed mile range as your target so 300 miles being the range for an ev will this new battery be able to deliver 300 miles of range for cheaper than lfp 
And we're going to find out that out next week or if it has the runway to do that. So for now, in China, they needed to get the price, the sell price down in order to get the subsidy. And I understand they were under some, under some pressure to use some domestic supply. So it is possible. I think for emerging markets it, with, with cheap cars, that's definitely going to be, you know, if you're talking India and other emerging markets, I think, you know, I don't know if you've seen this latest mini EV they're selling in China. I think it was number two in sales after Tesla. It's $4,000 for the car. So um, I, I think in certain price ranges, it will. Will LFP gain a market share in the mid to upper EV segment? I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced. You know, it, 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 it's used in the short range Model 3 in China. Good. That's uh, uh, Giles. Uh, uh, is there anything else uh, we should be asking? Otherwise, I think uh, it would remain. No, to... Yes. Well, we 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 wait with interest for Battery Day next week, and um, it'd be fascinating to see what um, what comes out and um, out from there, and um, and how that sort of shakes up the market. So, um, Rodney Hoover from RK Equity, um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. And um, yeah, it was a um, fantastic discussion. Thanks very much for having me on. And that was Rodney Hooper from RK Equity. Fascinating discussion, actually, David. Um, really interesting to um, th this guy, as you said, uh, knows his knows his biscuits. Um, really interesting. One thing I didn't really get a sense of was um, we talked about the um, the opportunity in Australia for um, you know battery. You know, I, I guess we're talking about gigafactories and battery cell production. But what about the actual miners, the lithium ion miners in Australia? I mean, can can Australia be a um, a major player in the supply chain? Uh, yes, it can. If uh, Australia has good West Australian spodumene uh, resources and companies uh, to the extent that international uh, um, uh, lithium miners have taken an interest in them. So I think there's quite a future there. Um, the other thing, Giles, I think that's quite obvious to anyone who looks at it seriously is that if you want to uh, make the electricity market in Australia work better, you'd like to grow demand in a sensible way. We all know that long-term decarbonisation requires a lot more electrification of industrial processes, you know, like in heavy industry, aluminium and, and iron ore and stuff. But uh, electric vehicles are certainly a big part of the solution, like 30 or 40%. Uh, and you know, we make the obvious argument that who wants to be dependent on imported oil when we can have our own EV industry, which would let us get through a year or two's war with China or something if that ever happened, you know, and, and, and we could do so much with EVs. And this is where federal policy just needs to take their head out of their sand and get climb down off their high horse and just get honest honest with what everyone who thinks about the issue seriously knows for an absolute fact. It's just so that when you talk uh, about this stuff, people listen to you instead of just turning off instantly. Well, um, we did mention earlier in the podcast, uh, Battery Day, that's appearing next week, um, Tesla and AGM in the morning, and then the Battery Day in the afternoon in Californian time. So if um, Scott Morris and Angus Taylor and your advisors are out there listening to this podcast, we do recommend that you do tune into Battery Day. You may learn a lot. You may learn, in fact, that um, batteries are going to be just fine to provide the dispatchable energy for Liddell, and perhaps um, you will see the writing on the wall about the transition from... Um, fossil fuel vehicles to electric vehicles, and um, who knows what may happen next. 
David, look, I think that's just about a wrap. I'm going to have to say thank you to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen, and for your ongoing support. Thanks also to our listeners um, out there for um, for listening and spreading the word. And please leave a review on the um, Apple iTunes um, podcast platform or elsewhere if you prefer. David, um, thank you very much for the discussion. And um, thanks for bringing Rodney Hooper on board. And uh, we look forward to next week. We do indeed, Giles. We do indeed look forward to next week. Bye now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.